Yeah, people have opinions. Um, <laughs> pretty strong ones. What? So. No. Yo, this is Vector. Hey everyone, this is Days Ahead. And I'm Nitroid. You're listening to the Kojima Frequency. When it comes to Metal Gear, you know, that's that's to be expected, but we're kinda we're not in the last of us fandom, so we didn't know they would be coming that hard. I mean, I knew. I may have gotten yelled at a little bit. <laughs> I, I knew, because The Last of Us, for a lot of people, it's their Metal Gear. So it's like uh, in, in Rambo, which is actually a Metal Gear reference. Uh, look at that. Uh, I think it was Rambo 3 when the colonel's like, we had our Vietnam, now you'll have yours. He's talking to the Russian dude. You guys remember that? Nope. I can't remember 3 oh. for the life of me. <laughs> yeah. 3 is the best one. What? Yeah, I can't remember it. I ought to go back. Oh, man. That's like all the Rambo memes come from from 3. Yeah, I can't really remember any of the plot beats uh, for Rambo 3, and I can't really remember too many of the plot beats from The Last of Us 2 because I just I really didn't care as I was playing through it. So I remember Weird Al parodying... Uh, <laughs> oh, right. What, yeah, was it the second one in UHF? Or was it could have been. Was, it he, could... was he parodying 2 or 3? I, essentially, all of the all the first three Rambo movies they all end the same. He got he's got an M sixty and he shoots it and blows stuff up and yells, which is when you get the M sixty three and MGS three. That's where that comes from. Yeah, that's amazing. First yes. time I did that, it was just it was just joy, pure, unadulterated, unfiltered joy. I just like but, the um, UHF where he's walking slowly towards the guy with the bow and arrow. And the enemy soldier is like unloading an SMG at him at point blank range and nothing's hitting. And then he lets go of the arrow and the soldier just explodes. I haven't seen that movie, but I know what you're talking about. I need to check this out for sure. It's a great movie. Sounds great. So, Fingers, you are, in fact, the only one of us who has finished the game. Yeah. You are the first of us. Hey. Ah, (laughs) nice. Very nice. I'm going to get yelled at again. (laughs) 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 <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, as a game, you know, my my impressions pretty much have stuck since last time. It was definitely great stealth. The combat was good, pretty satisfying, but uh, there was a lot of long, slow discussions, slow walk scenes that just, like, made me not like the game as much, and just the stuff that they were doing with the plot, I, I just didn't care. Like, any time the, the, you know, the camera started panning up and I realized it was a cut scene, I just kind of looked at Twitter. Um, I've done that with games, yeah. a lot of games. But it's like I don't, I won't just skip the cutscene. I don't know what's wrong with me. I'll sit there and and let it play through, even though I could skip it. Right? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I let them play out just to see what they were, but nothing really. Uh, you know, I, I was definitely more emotionally impacted by the first game. A lot of the stuff just kind of fell flat for me, and I was like, oh, okay. Um, hmm. And I, I think that is something that even dedicated fans are feeling. Well, some dedicated fans are feeling. Again, I haven't played the game, but as someone who did appreciate the first game's story, it did feel a bit like a dud. But to your point, I'm wondering if this is how people who've never played other Metal Gears feel about <laughs> Metal Gear Solid Five. 
Because there is that like subset. You guys know who I'm talking about. That subset of folks who really enjoyed Metal Gear Solid Five, never have played the other games. Right. And they just they don't understand sort of the divisiveness. Yeah, they don't get that there's a major tonal shift between every other Metal Gear Solid and Five. Yeah. <clears throat> and you know, I think part of the reason why we're a little critical of The Last of Us, to say the least, is because as Metal Gear fans, specifically Metal Gear fans who have kind of been neck deep in this for a very long time, we are very sensitive to effective melodrama. And when it comes to melodrama in Metal Gear, it sort of paints with a broad brush. It goes in a little bit of everywhere, you know? I'm trying to think of how to word this, because it's, it's kind of difficult to articulate what I'm trying to say here. Um, in The Last of Us, every emotional beat felt very forced to me. And in Metal Gear, despite how hokey it can get at times, you never feel like something is being forced on you. You never feel like you're being forced to feel something. Yeah, that, that's that's very much uh, what The Last of Us was doing. It was like forcing us, like, feel this emotion. Um, like yeah. the, the, here's the spoiler. When they're fighting at the very end, Abby and Ellie, and uh, she's, you know, Ellie definitely has the upper hand, has Abby underwater. Then she's got well, this, like, to be vision fair, of Joel. Go ahead. To be fair, she has most of her upper hand. Ah, yeah, at that point, yeah. <laughs> no, no, before before it gets, the, the fingers get bitten off. Yeah. Oh, okay, well. Yeah. It's just trying to make a joke, man. Yeah. Oh, okay. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. it. Yeah. yeah, me too. I, I just, I guess I just had to kill it. I, sorry. Yeah, she's, you know, so she's got her under there, and she's got this, like, just flashback of Joel sitting on the porch and stuff, and, like, that's I supposed to. I should have said, to... while she still had her upper hand. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm yeah, sorry. Go. Go. I'm there sorry, yeah. fingers. Yeah. Woo! I got it. Because she lost two fingers. Yeah. <laughs> fingers jokes. There's a back to you, fingers. <laughs> yep. Uh <laughs> so you know, like that whole force scene, it was like, doing this won't bring him back. You know, and it was like that was like the big <laughs> shift, you know, in her mind. Like, yeah, you go through the whole game killing everybody with no remorse really, but uh, right. if you want to call that character growth, I, I don't know. It's it just she just it's had not, a sudden just... epiphany, kind of. Was just like, "Yep." So, back to um, Nitroid's point about you know the forced feeling of The Last of Us versus the more I don't want to even say nuanced, uh, subtle. I guess no, <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. That, that's an oxymoron. Metal Gear ain't subtle. Subtle, subtle <laughs> melodrama is certainly an oxymoron. Um, also, I've been drinking a little. Um, <laughs> but to your point about that comparison, I think I think the greatest example honest. of this is... Uh, honest. That's a great... Okay, good. Honest. Honest is a good word. Uh, I think the best example is, is sort of the lesson or the message or the tone that you get out of it. Uh, you know, the switcheroo with Raiden, the end game of that is to tell you, you know, take whatever you got out of this experience and make that your message, you know, and, and move on with whatever that experience you personally had. Whereas the last of us, it seems to not give you any sort of agency with that message. You almost feel like jerked around with how they, they want you to feel. And I think as us as metal gear fans, that kind of offends us when people compare the, the two switcheroos because their their end game is is so is so vastly different. Yeah, 
And, you know, in a vacuum, The Last of Us 2 has its own thing that it's going for, and that's fine. I get that. But the comparison falls flat because the the goals of these two games could not be further apart. You know, Metal Gear never tries to tell you what to think outside of maybe one or two narrow points like nuclear weapons are bad. Yeah. Uh, Last of Us also teaches you to do, like, two-finger chords, um, you know, and the importance <laughs> of of uh, having a clear fretboard and, and, you know, getting that string buzz out right. of there. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. It's an acoustically responsible game. Uh, yeah, I mean, is it? Does anybody here play guitar? I mean... I dabble. Freaking Mark Hammond was playing songs along to it. I, I mean, the chords are definitely, you know, correct. So... Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I disagree somewhat about you know uh about metal gear not being manipulative uh i think obviously last of us 2 is way more heavy-handed and it like emo- it emotionally tries to make you feel things which just backfires exponentially most of the time but with most of the metal gear games there's uh except for for one there's usually a character whose job is to just be there to make you sympathize with the protagonist. In two, it was Rose. In three, it was the boss. And um, and then watching, um, actually, no. When I tried, when I tried my best to play Police Knots, uh, it's Jonathan's wife. Uh, and and their only purpose is just be there and like, oh, I have this this character that I care about, and you know, we have this history. I'm not going to show you the, what what that history is, or you know, make you understand why I care about this character. You're just supposed to know that 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 this character cares about this other one, and therefore th- the stakes have been set. And I don't think that's good storytelling. Obviously, Last of Us Two does it way worse, but. I would agree um, you know. and I would disagree because I, I think you're right on the surface that that's how these characters are set up. But throughout the course of the game, those relationships are justified, I feel. Uh, in, the, in the case of the boss, we don't need to know everything about the backstory between she and Naked Snake. But throughout the course of the game, in their interactions and the way they talk about each other... You know, you feel like, okay, there is a history here and I can believe it. You know, you, you do become emotionally invested there. Maybe. I mean, maybe maybe I, I didn't, you know, because it's like, all right, got to kill my mentor. Cool. I, I didn't. She didn't teach me anything personally. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure she taught Snake a whole bunch of stuff and gave him weapons and all that stuff. And, and you know, I have no problem killing the boss, but maybe Snake does. But it's hard for me to put myself in his shoes if I haven't personally built that relationship. The whole game I'm being told, like, hey, this is your mentor. You care about this person. She can tell how much you weigh just by hearing your voice. You know, like, so what? That that doesn't. I haven't experienced that. It means nothing to me. I'm uh, I'm a little in both of your boats. I'm kind of riding the fence here because the way I see it, I'm intrigued by the bosses and naked stakes relationship not so intrigued by the boss and i'm wondering if that was just sort of like the last of us where i get what they were doing but it was it felt the execution felt a little off because the boss herself felt a little alien to me which worked for the character as a concept somebody who's overcoming the concept of borders and countries and forces fighting each other for these arbitrary goals but as someone who has to feel sympathy for her, I did feel a little like taken aback, if that makes sense. 
I get it. I think in part that was because up until that point, we had been fed the legend of Big Boss and we had this image of him as this almost untouchable icon of sorts, right? And then we get to Metal Gear Solid 3 and we finally get to meet him and the game is instantly like, well, you know Big Boss? Well, check it out. This is Bigger Boss. (laughs) Well, unless you had looked at spoilers, you technically... You technically didn't know that it was Big Boss until the end. I mean, it was... Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody who paid even the smallest amount of attention knew what was going on. Yeah, I mean, you just see the year and you're like, oh, not Solid Snake, obviously. Well, maybe it's another clone. No, you guys, it's it's Solid Snake (laughs) and a Big Boss VR. A lot of people thought that uh, it was time travel at first. Like, there were legitimate time travel theories going around. And you know what? Like, if you had seen that in a forum before the game came out, I'm sure it would have been like, no, that's ridiculous. But didn't you guys say the same thing about that guy who leaked MGS 2's story? True. Yeah. And MGS 3's story uh, did actually get leaked before the game came out, quite a, way, quite a ways before the game got released. Like the, like the whole boss reveal and everything? Uh, well, um, okay, so here's the story. Uh, as best as I can remember it, because it's been a very long time. But... On one of the more uh, on one of the the two big Metal Gear forums at the time, and I can't remember if it was Metal Gear Net or the unofficial site. It was one of the two. Um, mm-hmm. One of the um, the members there, I want to say he was like an amateur voice actor, or was an aspiring voice actor, and he was using a casting agency to audition for parts. And if you wanted to audition for a part, you had to find one you like in a list and pay for the casting reel so that you could get the bit and and audition, essentially, right? It was like you could piecemeal it out or something like that. Hmm. And he noticed this casting agency was being used by Konami. Wow. And they had Metal Gear Solid 3 listed. Okay. So he figured, oh, wow, well, let's see what information they have because, you know, he's a big Metal Gear fan, and he pays like 20 bucks and gets the casting call sheets and it's got a breakdown of the basic premise of the plot and every single character. Oh no. No way. Yeah. And, and he just posts them on the forum and it's like the boss is a mentor to naked snake who is the big boss, big boss. We imagine is this Schwarzenegger type figure who's like, they, they specifically say like Schwarzenegger type figure and it mentions the pain and the fear and Thunderbolt, and like, and we're reading this, right. like, dude shoots bees out of his mouth? What? <laughs> <laughs> this so is a, why, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say, so yeah, like, a, all of this stuff was was out before they had intentionally let it go, and like, it didn't get into, like, specific story beats, but we had, like, a broad understanding of what this was gonna be very early on. Wow. This is why nowadays, voice actors for video games that are auditioning Right. Their parts, like the, the description is so generic now. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's that's fantastic. Oh, yeah. So like every Metal Gear has had some sort of a story leak to some extent. Almost, it feels like. Right. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, The Last of Us 2, uh, I, I, it doesn't even, it, it's not even worth talking about anymore. I feel like it's, uh, the, there was that Twitter thread. Uh, that you had that got like a whole bunch of traction uh, where you, you know, you had seen the comparisons to MGS two and then you, you kind of went into a a semi detailed, as detailed as you can get on Twitter. Yeah. That kind of pissed some people off. People are angry. Of course they were mad. People were also upset about the uh, MGS V unfinished 
debate too. We got some really mad oh, people about that, but you know what's weird is that I post these things. I'm not trying to like be provocative, and the way I word these things isn't always the best because I can sound like I'm trying to be show offy <laughs> about it. I realize in hindsight, a lot of the time it comes off that way, and I really don't intend that. Um, yeah. But what's weird is I'll get yelled at, and then the people who yell at me will follow me, and that sends a very mixed message. <laughs> right. Look, I hate you. I can't wait to see what what else you got to say. And, like I'm I not, can hate you some more. <laughs> and like I'm not trying. I get called a fanboy a lot, and like I'm not. I'm probably one of the most critical people when it comes to Metal Gear. Like, get me started on MGS4, please. I'm not trying to provoke or be a fanboy or anything. I just, I care that people understand what I think is valid and accurate. And if, if it went another way, like if I went through everything that the last of us two offered and found, Oh, actually this is a valid comparison. It does share a lot in common with metal gear solid two. Then I would say that, right. You know, that's where I would throw my hat or with metal gear solid five if what I had seen had led me to the conclusion that, oh, okay, this game actually is unfinished, then I would say that. Like, I don't really have a horse in this race other than I care about accuracy. Hmm. And, like, maybe that makes me kind of a dumb nerd, but, you know, there you go. It just, it just makes you the opposite of most of the internet, I think. I guess. Yeah. And I think, you know... And I know we've we've gone back and forth about this before, but in a post-2016 Twitter world, especially in the gaming world, especially in the let's all vote zeros and tens Metacritic world, um, <laughs> some people who do hold these fandoms very close to their heart and very personally, even if somebody tries to go as objectively as possible... In your con- the context of this, you know, you saying, hey, you know, maybe the Metal Gear Solid 2 comparison isn't very appropriate, you know, they, they take that in bad faith. They say, you know, because you don't agree with Neil Druckmann's comparison to Metal Gear Solid 2 or his inspiration, you don't think it, you think it fell flat, that is a slight against them, and that is you trying to push the meme that The Last of Us 2 sucks, which, if you guys listen to us, you know, at least I'm of the opinion, and from my understanding, Nitroid, we're of the opinion, yeah, you know, we think some of the plot beats are duds, but... We can't wait to try the stealth, you know, when it's on sale for $30, 20 to $30. Right. Yeah, and you've already seen the cutscenes, so you can just, you know, go right on through. Yeah. Well, there's also an aspect of when you take an opinion in a contentious debate like this, when you when you're you're perceived as taking a side. Yeah. Because there's there's a team dynamic going on where like let's say there's team A and team B. Team A says The Last of Us 2 is the greatest game ever made, and team B says it's the worst game ever made. Like if you come out and and you're kind of on the fence, but you lean a little towards, eh, maybe it's not that good, then you are perceived as being on Team B, you know, the team that says it's the worst thing that ever was made. And any right. opinions or views that that team has espoused or has been perceived of having espoused, like, you know, getting into uh, some of the more controversial aspects of it and people talking about Abby's physique and whatnot, like any of the, the fringe aspects of that debate that may have nothing to do with what you're talking about you are now seen as also sharing those opinions yeah i personally liked abby's arms i thought you know i thought she was in great shape 
That's yeah, I, like, so I, I had like zero issue with. So if anybody you know wanted to lump that in, it's just like no, I just didn't really yeah. care for a lot of the cutscenes. Like, but I don't care. That's not at all what I was talking about. But I had yeah. people in there bringing up issues like that that had absolutely nothing to do with what I was saying. Ah. But because I was critical of The Last of Us Two, that means every criticism of The Last of Us Two is now my opinion that's been shoved in my mouth. Yeah, that uh, I saw that. I, I ran into that and actually became uh, became friends with a guy who was who was trying to straw man real hard like that. And and then because uh, there was a, there was um that other thread where um where you posted about MGS five being finished. And there was a guy, uh, you, you posted in the Discord server, this guy who was saying something like, uh, you know, it's not worth looking into and, uh, you know, stop, uh, you know, Kojima fans should stop analyzing stuff like every speck of dust doesn't need to be analyzed. And so then Days talks about this guy on Twitch who's streaming, uh, who was doing an in-depth story run of MGS2. So I check out the stream, you know, because I got nothing else going on. Uh, and so then, you know, he, he's looking at all the codec conversations and then he looks at the visualizer on Raiden's codec and he goes, you know, it's kind of shaped like a gun, uh, that's, that's pointed at Raiden's head. And maybe that's a reference to, to Raiden being held captive by the Patriots or something. And so, so I had to go on Twitter and apologize to that guy. And I was like, <laughs> dude, you're absolutely right. I'm so sorry. Sometimes people do be overanalyzing stuff. Side note, uh, side note, we love Outer Heaven Network. This is not shade. We love you guys. I did not even mention the name. You did. <laughs> Oops. So Look, there's nobody else who does that on Twitch, though, okay? so Hey, it, I didn't name any names. Look, if, if somebody listens to this podcast and you describe that, they're likely going to know. I didn't name any names. Okay. So. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something that could be perceived as controversial, but... I think this mindset of looking into finer details for meaning is very, it's definitely uh, a very dominant trend in the Metal Gear fandom because Metal Gear fans, Kojima fans, they like to analyze small details for large messages. Python Selkin. What? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, no naming names. I'm dropping all of the names. So, like, that sort of spreads to other aspects. Now, speaking personally, that is not as interesting to me as the development history behind these games. I'm, okay. I'm more interested in, like, how they were made and the thought process that went into, like, constructing everything. And, and I, I've said it before, but I kind of look at it sort of like a museum curator where I want to I see everything on display properly, you know, and I'm interested in, like, you know, why were these pieces here in the way they were? And I'm not really like, like, okay, well, why does Raiden wear his watch on his left hand instead of his right? What does that mean? Um, like, I'm not looking for that. So when I come out with stuff like this, where I talk about MGS5 being finished and whatnot, I think that some of the fans read into it kind of in the same way they read into, like, Kojima's tweets about things. If that, Am I making sense? Yeah. There's kind of a level of supernatural thinking that they that a lot of fans apply to these games that when I try to get down to brass tacks isn't really seen as that. I might not be okay. explaining this well. I I mean I just I I got to know like who's asking about this watch thing. It's so that you can tell the time when you've got your hand on the rifle like 
why would you wear it on your right hand where you can't see your watch? I, well, okay, I here's here's an example. Like, like when uh, when you have some. Wait, well, no, no, I got a better example. And I'm really sorry to interrupt, but remember that one episode where we spent half an hour talking about the ice cubes and the tanker chapter. That yeah. was a great discussion. Okay. No, it wasn't. That's another reason why I had to apologize to that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Metal Gear definitely gives you that ammo to like to go through everything with that deep though. Like it, it's definitely one of the games that's enjoyable to do that with. I also just want to note that the two people who are all about this bullshit are the the two people who work in software development. So you know, take that as you will. Yeah. Okay. Fair. Okay. Great segue to the next topic here. Okay, because look at the way people treat the Tomokazu Fukushima issue. Okay. The issue. The issue, yeah, of, of like the commonly held belief among a, a, a large number of fans is that right. he's sort of the brains behind the operation. And then what he then when he left, Metal Gear immediately dipped in quality like he was actually the genius and not not Kojima. Like that's the right. That's the again, an example of that sort of magical thinking that when you actually, you know, when you dive into the facts doesn't really hold any water. Which is not to say that he's not an incredibly talented writer when you go off of what he has done, but it's it, it's again yeah. you look at you look at that you look at the rumors surrounding Kojima as he was departing Konami, and and there's just sort of like this this attitude of interpreting everything like it's a soap opera of sorts, you know? Yeah, let's definitely talk about the Fukushima thing, and I I think I'm gonna try my best to play devil's advocate because I'm like directly responsible for perpetuating the idea that Fukushima was the, the brains of the operation, uh, and which is why I had to, you know, delete all my videos and, and, you know, change my name and, and go through the witness protection program, all that stuff. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think there is a lot of evidence, you know, there's those interviews that we've seen where Fukushima straight up says, you know, it, you know, he, he came in towards the, the end of MGS one's development uh, you know, Kojima had already laid out the uh, a lot of the basis of the story, and then Fukushima did you know some some optional codec conversations. You know, honestly, based on the the stuff that I've seen, I really haven't seen enough evidence to say you know one way or another. And I'm basing that on the fact that you know it was a common practice at that time in Konami for one person to do all the work and then another person to take credit for it. And this has been documented uh, by the, the guy who did all the, the cutscenes for silent Hill two. And just, you know, just after seeing, seeing that and what he had to go through and how he had to petition and, and, and beg and work 20 hour days or, you know, just a ridiculous amount of work that he had to do in order to get properly credited in the credits for silent Hill two. You know, it just it makes me question. I can't say be, like with a hundred percent certainty one way or another if that makes any sense. It does, and I think I found a good analogy for the Fukushima question. Let's say right that maybe a better way to frame it. Okay, um, I think we're we're all in agreement. And I would say most Metal Gear fans are in agreement that in in the case of MGS One, it was greatly beneficial to that game's script and tone that Jeremy Blaustein contributed to it. Uh, to 100%. The one, Absolutely. Right? His influence on that English script took something that was already good, but elevated it. Right? Personally, 
I don't think it would have been good without his input. You don't think so? I mean, especially when you get into the, the genetics thing. Like, you know, little kid me would have been like, oh, wow, is that how alleles work? But, you know, <laughs> then I would have hit freshman year of biology and I'd have been like, hey, wait a second. This isn't like Metal Gear at all. Teacher! And then, you know, the whole thing well, would have been I, What, do you, what do you mean specifically there? Because that, that wasn't... Like dominant majorly. genes and recessive genes, right? But he didn't change anything about that. Right, I know. But that's what I'm saying. It's like without the other stuff that he added, like, you know, the weapons and equipment, OSP, and like the word codec. Right. You know, you'd have this story that was like, what the hell is going on here? As melodramatic as Metal Gear can sometimes be, I do think that Metal Gear Solid 1 is elevated by its tone and atmosphere. And that definitely, Jeremy Blostein's uh, translation definitely adhered to that sort of cold, industrial, Alaskan tone of Shadow Moses. But to that point, and Nitro, I'll let you continue, the whole concept or the whole idea, all the evidence for the whole uh, quote-unquote Fukushima incident, is that what we're calling it? I don't know. Uh, All of it seems very circumstantial, really. I mean, people doing work and then someone else taking credit, that's a classic corporate trope. Right. You know, going back to the whole point about Jeremy Blaustein, I mean, that's one of many variables that, you know, is not necessarily affected by Fukushima's involvement. So, like you said, I think it's, the the evidence is very circumstantial. Well, what I meant by bringing up Blaustein was that you had somebody who wasn't necessarily a part of the writing team, but still contributed to the writing in a meaningful way, at least in terms of the English script. And I wonder if that level of influence is what Fukushima had, where it wasn't major, but he trimmed the edges just enough. Hmm. You know, that's what I'm wondering. Right. Because when you look at the interviews, when you look at the evidence, he worked mainly on uh, supplemental codec dialogue. Right. And Kojima mentions that when Fukushima came in and then on later titles, some of the things that he would help with were terminology much like Jeremy Blaustein did. So, you know, he I think one of the quotes was, uh, after the plot was decided, I had Fukushima help me on writing the script for the voiceovers. The harsher terms in the script, such as a uh, Japanese term for patricide or, mm-hmm. or words like bravery and cowardice, were his contributions. And again, like you said, with Jeremy Blaustein and, and Kodak and weapons and equipment OSP and, and right. little flourishes like that. Flourishes. That add that add flavor and detail to the world and personality that elevate it just that bit further. I'm wondering if that is what the truth of it is. Not that he was some genius behind the the screen that we didn't see, but that he was just there to add those little extra touches to, to bring it up a notch. To your point, I think that's a great way of looking at it. You know, I, I don't think that Fukushima was the genius behind anything. And, and back to my point about everything this whole concept being circumstantial at best, um, I think a a great way to approach it is just sort of looking incrementally at what, what downgraded the writing in the later Metal Gear series. And it's not as if they're complete shit, um, but but there are some, you know, nuances and details that make it feel off compared to, you know, one and two. So counterpoint to what I've just said, because you've got to look at both sides of this. Um, he had full writing credits on Metal Gear Ghost Babble. Okay, uh, that's an excellent point. And on the Snake Tales. Yeah. 
and those are excellent. Now, they are right. very, very different in tone from Canon Metal Gear. There is no denying there is a difference in tone there, a difference in style. But I would almost say that that is kind of proving the point that he was not the, the one really pulling the strings, be, because there is that tonal difference. Uh, Very because good point. When, when he's working by himself, you know, you, you play through Ghost Babble, and it doesn't have that sort of thematic thread running through it that standard Metal Gear Solid titles have. You know, there's, right. there's no theme to Ghost Babble. It's just a political slash military drama with, you know, some pretty interesting ideas in it. But it doesn't, it doesn't have anything like tying it all up in a bow. Hmm. Fingers, uh, I haven't heard from you in a really long time. I was wondering if you had anything to say before I jumped in. Yeah, I've never really been into like the the staff side of things, like the writing. I just I just don't follow up on that stuff. I, I just play whatever they put out. <laughs> I completely understand that. Yeah, like I I just I just don't care. That's fine. Once again, fingers is all about that gameplay. But like it's it's interesting. I'm I'm listening. You know, like it's it's interesting to learn it. But I that's just something that I don't have too much experience with. Yeah, you know, just wanted to make sure your voice was heard just in case. But um, Nitroid, you said a couple minutes ago, like you wonder if uh if that's what it was. You know, if if Fukushima was just adding flourishes, and that's a great word. That's a that's a perfect word for that. Uh, if he was just adding, you know, flourishes here and there. But the best we can do with the evidence that we have is wonder. And that's my problem. That's specifically my problem with, with Kojima's style and how he approaches things is that we don't have enough to go on. We really can't tell how much these other, his other, uh, right. co-workers, his co-writers are contributing. Cause if you look at MGS 5s credits, there's, there's five separate people, including Kojima credited as writers. And so what what are they contributing exactly? Right. Are they all in a writer's room? Writing in games can be incredibly broad. I mean, we're, you know, we know, I believe Shuya Murata wrote um, In the Darkness of Shadow Moses, for example. Right. And, um, and so it, I, exactly. if I'm wrong, someone's going to correct me, so I hope they do. But you have those supplemental materials. You have writing in the instruction manual. You have writing... Uh, item descriptions you have writing in the codec you have all writing is a broad term in games it is and that is why in japanese that's where the term scenario comes from uh when it uh, as it is as it specifically applies to story and it took me a long time to understand that word scenario like you'd see in in the credits for resident evil 2 like scenario writer and i was like scenario writer what does that mean and that's in english that's essentially the script uh, and so you would have a separate credit for like the manual writer and, and, um, you know, uh, like MGS five, there's a credit for, there's two people that just did research and there's another guy who did weapons research. Uh, and so, you know, you have all these people that are credited as doing these things, but we just, we have absolutely no clue what exactly they did. And that is what makes me question Kojima as a writer. The fact that he works with all these people and we really have, we really don't have any evidence that he has done anything, if that makes <laughs> any sense. It's just he puts his name on things. Like, True. you know, but the, he has what also... got me to buy Zone of the Enders was the fact that it said produced by Hideo Kojima. And I thought produced meant like made and directed by. But no, it just means, yeah. you know, he told people like, hey, quit slacking off or something like that. He knew everybody that was involved. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, you didn't buy it for the demo? 
That criticism, that it, it reminds me of uh, in hip hop, you know, hip hop, it has a lot of samples. And, and when you do sample those things, the, the writing credits get very bloated. Um, True. So like, you know, when I forget if it was like Lemonade, uh, one of Beyonce's albums, when it came out, everybody's like, right. you know, 11 people wrote Beyonce's song. But in actuality, <laughs> some of those songs, she had specific samples, you know. Her, the fact right. that you know her team was able to pull that together—that's that's where her talent comes in, and and that that you know that isn't to compare Kojima with Beyonce. Beyonce, <laughs> I, don't I, don't, I don't think we're ready for that jelly. <laughs> I don't know. That might be a pretty apt comparison. <laughs> There's your title. I don't think you're ready for that Jehuti. Uh, but exactly. yeah, I mean, Kojima licious. The only, uh, the only, <laughs> Jesus. The only um, wrench in the gears, let's say, to this is the fact that Kojima himself has, and and you can choose to believe him or not, but he has openly stated that when it comes to the main script of the game, as in like the demo, uh, as they call it in Japan, or the the cutscenes, the main story, he writes every single word. Bullshit. I'm, I mean, and... I just I'm not going to take his word for it because he's lied directly to my face before. Yeah, I mean that that's probably a process that, you know, is then edited and looked over and then touched up by other people, you know, but he could be like, so this is how I want it to go. All right, I wrote that. You know, and then it's like the editors come in and clean it up and the localizers and all that. That's where your Jeremy Blaustein's come in and go, uh, yeah, right. yeah let me just Scratch that out real quick. And- I would I I would say I believe that he writes the initial draft and then he's got people helping him yeah. tune it up. I mean that makes sense and there's nothing wrong with that. That's you know yeah you need editors for sure. Absolutely, nobody works in a vacuum. Right, and that's the problem with the Metal Gear fan base is that they think Kojima does work in a vacuum. They can't even pronounce his name right. So, and they they hail him as a god. And I know this is somebody who used to hail Kojima as a god. Uh, you know, as I grow up and I become a young professional, I'm starting to realize that gamers, particularly the most vocal ones, they have no idea what it, what comes into software development. Oh, none whatsoever. Planning, you know, things like that. Sprint well, planning. it's because I, a big part of it is that to a lot of people who play these games, these are very meaningful experiences to them. And so they tend to romanticize them quite a bit. And that includes romanticizing how they're made. Another part of that is big big studios, they rarely show you the behind-the-scenes work. Uh, even though we have stuff like the document of Metal Gear Solid 2, you're not getting a picture of, like, how much money went into, the, it went into development. You know, people tend to keep a lot of stuff hidden when it comes to games because they're afraid that it'll give competitors an edge if they knew how the sausage was made. And that's why, like what bothers me when you do get like a making of DVD that comes with a game. I remember one came with fallout three and it was just the most bare bones. really weren't saying anything of substance, just a bunch of interviews. Like here's what we were trying to accomplish, but I wanted to know more. Like, how did you guys actually make this? What software and tools did you use? You know, like, what are you guys using to, to model? Is it Maya? Is it 3DS Max? Is it Blender? It's probably not Blender, but but if it is Blender, <laughs> let me know. I think that would be really helpful to me. You know, this is part of what's so amazing about the, the document of MGS2 is that it goes into so many of these details and it shines a bright light on them. I mean, you can see almost everything about how this was made. Um, and I wish they had done the same for later Metal Gear Solid titles, though I kind of understand why they didn't. 
they did talk a bit about the development in 4 in more depth than they did about 3, but that was mostly in online materials. A funny anecdote about the document of MGS2, and I can't remember where this was from. I think it was, uh, it might have been on, on Hideo blog back when that was a thing, which that was great to read back in the day. But when the document of MGS2 released in Japan, Kojima visited one of the bigger stores, and he noted that everybody in line for it was a game developer. Wow. See? There you go. They're trying to get that, uh, that yeah. insider info. But that How makes... Guys make this thing? Why wouldn't you want to spread that? That pushes the industry forward. I mean, I get it on, on like a protecting your secrets and staying ahead of the curve level, but... Man. Yeah. No, yeah, and that's why, you know, it's cool to go back to Naughty Dog. Naughty Dog and uh, Insomniac, they used to share information all the time when they were working on Ratchet and Clank and Jack and Daxter. Um, But, you know, it's a matter of protecting your investment. And if you have a game like The Last of Us 2 that sells gangbusters, you know, 5 million copies opening weekend or whatever insane numbers it did, then you want to create the impression that only Naughty Dog is capable of doing something like this. If other studios get an edge like that and, you know, their facial animation and their lip physic technology uh, for, for kiss scenes, if it, if it catches up to Naughty Dog, then, you know, that's, that's essentially what sells those games. That's such a reductionist point of view though, because it, it's, it discounts the amount of artistic talent that has to go into something like that it just reduces it down to oh well we have better tools therefore we have better games and it's just not true right well there is there's tons of artistic talents uh going into that which is why all of those those people working on that game they're under severe ndas and that's now we know that the leaks that happened for the last of us two they didn't come from somebody within naughty dog that was leaked by a hacker or something Mm -hmm. right because if 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 there were, were ever caught the fallout would be just insane um and that's where something similar happened with uh half-life 2 didn't it back in the day yeah uh, it was a, a, a russian hacker I yeah think. it was some kid who who hacked it and then valve um they were like okay you know good job oh, kid. Yeah. we'll offer you a job why don't you <laughs> right. uh, come on over and we'll give you an interview and then he got off the plane and they gave they put him and in the cups. cops were waiting for him at the <laughs> Man, airport and how dumb can you be <laughs> But that's how corporate es- espionage happens in the games industry. It's like we can't we, – we don't know how the sausage was made, but we can hire the guy who made the sausage. And so mm. you'll get you'll get guys like – that's why um, I think it might have actually been Gorilla before Death Stranding was announced and, you know, uh, Kojima, it was announced that he wasn't going to be with Konami anymore. Somebody in, in – um, in Europe, I forget who, but they were like, you know, we we extend an immediate offer to, uh, of the position of lead game designer. You know, you can come over here, no questions asked. Yeah, why I, it was like you? a, it was a joke or a joke tweet or something. But you know, there's a little bit of, of seriousness behind it. So I wonder, take that for what you will. I wonder if there have been any negative, uh, there have been any downsides to say the fact that Doom put out their source code. I mean, I know that's an old game, but... Right. That's a great question. I don't see any, you know, because after at that point, it had already made as much money... It had made the optimal amount of money, and it was more... Putting out the source code allowed people to port it to other machines. Before that, like the... every machine. 
Exactly. Yeah. You toasters run doom now, you know, uh, there was a, there was a joke. <laughs> it was a, it was like a, it was made with after effects or something, but there was a guy who was using his Ferrari to play doom and he, he like drove around oh, a parking geez. lot. Like you hit the pedal to shoot. It was, but it was, it was fake. So don't, don't think that's real, but you can actually run doom on a Ferrari. It's, um, but can so, the Ferrari for run crisis? That's the question. The point is though, that, that it had moved on to other things and, when they released that it was of benefit to them in terms of public image and reputation and building a fan base right it wasn't a detriment so no when, you know when when their next game came out i'm gonna bet you know i don't i don't know the timeline of when they put the source code out versus what their release schedule was but i'm willing to bet that doing so in the long run was more beneficial than it was detrimental Oh yeah, without a doubt. But they they had the ability to do that because they uh they weren't really owned by by any company. Activision at one point had publishing rights, but they didn't really own the company the way Bethesda does now. And so, you know, because of the end user license agreement that that they have, you're not allowed to port you know, say rage to, to another machine you know, to, right. to Linux or something. Not that you'd want to, cause who would want to play that game? But that's besides the point. One other factor we have to consider is the culture. I mean, I'd imagine that a few Western PC developers would be a lot more open to providing that source code than say, you know, an Eastern developer who is infamous for actually not keeping their source code. As we learned from uh, silent Hill HD collection. Right. Or the Final Fantasy series. Well, true, um, yeah. Funny thing about that. Um, I don't know if it's ever been fully confirmed that Final Fantasy VIII, uh, if the source code was truly lost or not. I believe that's generally accepted as what happened. Right. But from what I understand, that wasn't the only thing they lost of that game. Uh, just this past week, I ordered the uh, Ultimania archive for 7, oh, right. 8, and 9. Yeah. Which is basically just this giant book that chronicles everything in the game. You know, it's like concept art and character bios and behind the scenes images and like it's it, oh, it's just super cool stuff. And like you 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 look at the side of the book and the pages are colored green, red, and yellow for seven, eight, and nine. And the areas for seven and nine are like over a centimeter thick and the section for eight is like barely half a centimeter because apparently they Whoa. lost a lot of the concept work. Wow. That reminds me of, um, you remember like a month ago when there was, um, or actually it was when that, uh, that article came out about Kojima funneling resources that was supposed to go into MGS five to, you know, to make PT and, and do all kinds of crazy right, stuff. Right. And then Kojima productions, actually they released a, a, an official response to that article, which was like, it's it a hundred percent of it's untrue. Yeah, they said they uh, said know, it was categorically false. Right. We're, we're focusing and, and, on the PC release now, y'all. <laughs> and you know, we talked for, we talked a little bit for a second like even if there was some truth, like even if one of those things in that article was true, it's in their best interest to deny it completely. Um, you know, so that they yeah. they just have deniability. And I feel like the the games industry does a lot of that where it's like you know, we could release our source code, but just in case, you know, we're going to keep it under wraps. Yeah, I guess I can't blame them from that point of view. It's it's disappointing in a, a lot of the time. Like the fact that other people can't use the Fox engine, even though I've heard some people say it's it's terrible to, to use. 
uh, it's still like you, you guys spent all that effort making an engine and use it for like one and a half games and FIFA. That's just Japanese game dev for you. I mean, develop an engine, <laughs> use it for a game, then dump it. That's just that's the been the trend for so many right. years, and only recently have they started like looking at licensed engines right. like Unreal and and Unity and what have you. And and that's that's funny. Uh, you know, Square Squeenix they spend uh, all that effort making their own engine, which they use to make uh, FF fifteen. And then, you know, FF7 Remake and Kingdom Hearts 3 are just an Unreal, which is unreal, if you think about it. It is, and I wonder if that's, I wonder how much that's saving them in terms of just time and resources. I would say a shit ton. Yeah. Though, I still want to try out that original versus concept, you know? Dude, that'd be great, but it'll never happen. Yeah. Well, I've got a little bit of a fluff topic uh, that kind of goes into... Me and Nitroid's methodology. Do it, of, fluff it of up. Research. Um, so one point that I did want to make, since especially we brought up PT and Silent Hill, um, you know, we've been discussing today about the concept of, you know, to what extent do certain creative influences influence a game? Of course, hmm. today we talked about Metal Gear with Fukushima. One thing that I was considering, and I think about way too much, um, is actually <laughs> Silent Hill. There's, you know, the subset of the Silent Hill fandom that is very, like, we want another game, you know, please bring Team Silent back. And I'm at the point where now where I've accepted that Team Silent's never coming back. That, that seems like an impossibility at this rate. But what I've been doing, or at least try to do, is follow sort of what the staff of Team Silent is doing currently. Because I think the best way to continue following Silent Hill, at least spiritually, is to follow what these individual contributors are doing now. I was a little surprised by some of these. Um, yeah. And if I pronounce these names wrong, please forgive me. Takayoshi... I'll be sure to correct you. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Vector. Uh, <laughs> Takayoshi Sato, um, he was the character designer for Silent Hill 1 and 2. Ended up working for Nintendo for Paper Mario and Mario Tennis. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so he went from um, designing characters like nurses and Pyramid Head, I guess, and things like that to, uh, right. you know, getting getting Peach in her tight little uh, tennis costume. I don't know. Um, the other one that I think is... A little touchy considering his involvement is uh, Masahiro Ito. He um, tweets yep. a bunch. He does. <laughs> uh, was he the one that tweeted about like, like somebody asked him about the symbolism of Eddie's pizza, and he said something like, <laughs> "Oh, you know, it was just pizza." <laughs> I think probably. Yeah, because he was like he did like art direction and and creatures and things for one through three, right? Yeah, correct. He actually did, um, he was an art director for 2 and 3. Um, he did monster design for Silent Hill 1. Um, and then he had a few special thanks credits and some later titles. Uh, but this one kind of cracked me up because he ended up being a creature design designer for Metal Gear Survive. Um, right, right. Yeah, he so came that, up with the, uh, the, I don't even remember what you call them, the crystal head zombie things and the, uh, the Lord of Dust, but if I remember, he said he didn't even really know what the story was for him. Well, I think 
And I might, I mean, I think all of us are in sort of a neutral position with survive. So I'm putting out my flame shield, but I thought <laughs> that their character design, the monster designs were a pretty interesting concept in survive. Um, I'm looking for people to play it on PC with, but nobody's biting. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Send out a, uh, uh, call out on Twitter like, hey, who wants to play Survive? I'm sure somebody will, somebody out there. Either either I'll get some nabs or get how the fuck dare you even talk <laughs> about playing Survive? How are you even on this podcast if you play Survive? To which I say, well, two other people here play Survived. I love Survive, so people can shut the hell up. Yeah, I had a good right. time with it. It's yeah, just, I mean, that's the, like, the people that didn't enjoy it and hate it, like, did not play it or didn't get to the parts where it was, like, good. And they just ran around and poked stuff through a fence and were like, this is it. And it was, yeah, that pissed The bottom line is it's not as offensive as people make it out to be. It's just a yeah. fun little spinoff slash time waster. Right. Yeah, I remember saying, like, Mario Kart didn't ruin Mario. You know, it's like right. it's, they're just two separate things, man. So good what's... Point. uh to get back to your topic, what's Akira Yamaoka up to these days? Uh, He's still at Grasshopper, right? Is Let's see. Last I checked he was, but that was years ago. That was in 2018, I think. All right, so uh, obviously he contributed to some of the music in the Dead by Daylight uh, Silent Hill DLC. It looks like he did some work for Persona, Persona 4. Um, oh, whoa. World of Tanks, that's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> let's see. He was the music director for Lollipop Chainsaw, which I didn't know. So yeah, yeah I don't, I don't know if he's still at. I don't know if he's still at Grasshopper, but I, I was. I didn't know he was contributing to them as early as 2012. Oh wow! So, I didn't know he contributed to Rumble Roses. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, he was at Konami at the time. I just for some reason I picture like this like chill trip hop music while these two girls are like wrestling in mud and their boobs are jiggling everywhere. It just it's an interesting right. you know, a vivid but interesting picture for me, but carry on. Interesting thing about Yamaoka is that he will occasionally tour with uh, Joe Ramersa and Mary Elizabeth McGlynn and they they had a, a YouTube account. I don't know if they updated anymore, but they, they like they called their their little uh, trio a foggy place, you know, right? Okay. Oh, um, yeah, nice. Okay. But right. they would tour around and, and do like music from Silent Hill together. And, and like there's right. videos of concerts of them. And at one point they even covered Snake Eater, which is pretty interesting. Cool. So if you ever want to hear uh, the lead vocalist for the, for most of the music from Silent Hill sing Snake Eater, just look that up. So um, regarding Rumble Roses, the jiggle in that game was actually very tasteful. Nothing ridiculous like you see in Dead or Alive. Um, and I wanted to go back uh, to Takayoshi Sato. That was the guy. He was the CGI director for Silent Hill 1 and 2. Did all of the the, the CG cutscenes by himself. And, you know, there's a there's a video. Whoa. That guy's that guy's a complete badass. He's He's also fluent in English which is extremely rare to see, uh, you know, from a Japanese native. And this is, you know, somebody who used to work with English teachers who didn't even speak English. So, but, you know, he did, he did all the CGI cutscenes by himself. So whenever you see CG in Silent Hill 1 and 2, that's, that's his work solo. But Konami wanted to assign him a supervisor who would take all the credit for, for his work. Uh, and he said, no, I don't, I don't need, 
any help, like I'm going to be doing it myself. And so, you know, he'd put in 16 hour days. He slept at the office and he got those cutscenes done. And he's, he's a huge idol of mine. And I also don't think that his work on GoldenEye Rogue Agent should be taken lightly. I think that's a, that's an underrated game. It is. Yeah. That's Uh, amazing. And, and to that point, I mean, Silent Hill 2. For lack of a better term, like that, that shit aged like wine. I mean, it still holds up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it introduced Pyramid Head, which is the most iconic to its detriment. It's the most iconic <laughs> enemy, enemy, uh, monster creature that to come from Silent Hill. But now it's it, it, to the point where it's associated with Silent Hill in general, uh, which wasn't its intention at all. It was so good that in a weird way, it sort of ruined Silent Hill. Yeah. Yeah, like when when Pyramid Head showed up in the movie, when I saw that as a kid, I'm like, oh, that, that's that's cool, but it doesn't it doesn't suit this character. There's no reason. There's no psychological reason for this this creature to be there. So that's if you're gonna do Silent Hill, that's why I I say don't make another Silent Hill because I'm just terrified of them not understanding the psychological horror aspect that needs to come from from Silent Hill and how it needs to tie in all of the the environments and the creatures that you face in the game they need to tie into the psychology of the person you're playing as and if they you don't if you don't have that then but one wasn't really psychological like that in the first place it wasn't it two made it psychological one was just mostly like kind of a story about the occult and and it was a more personal right, right. story but it wasn't it wasn't like these weren't manifestations of Harry's psyche that was something that two brought in and then oh well see but that's that's um, that's my whole thing is you know that's what Silent Hill became known for cuz I, right. I honestly I've not played the first one but I have played 2 3 4 and all of the the yeah. crappy remakes that they and three you know, tried to sort you know of split ones. the difference on one and two to questionable results. I love three, right. but but some of the some of it did not land. Yeah, yeah. So, well, at least we're not Sonic fans. Ew. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we might be soon, depending on how uh, they handle the Metal Gear animated series, which we should talk about another time. 